Chapter Two, Part One of A Jewish State by Theodore Herzl, translated by Sylvie Avigdor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Two: The Jewish Question, Part One. The Jewish Question. No one can deny the gravity of the Jews' situation. Wherever they live in perceptible numbers, they are more or less persecuted. Their equality before the law, granted by statute, has become practically a dead letter. They are debarred from filling even moderately high positions, either in the army or in any public or private capacity, and attempts are made to crowd them out of business also. No dealing with Jews. Attacks in parliaments, in assemblies, in the press, in the pulpit, in the streets, on journeys, for example their exclusion from certain hotels, even in places of recreation, become daily more numerous, the forms of persecution varying according to the countries in which they occur. In Russia impositions are levied on Jewish villages, in Romania a few human beings are put to death. In Germany they get a good beating when the occasion serves. In Austria, anti-Semites exercise terrorism over all public life. In Paris they are shut out of the so-called best social circles and excluded from clubs. Shades of anti-Jewish feeling are innumerable. But this is not to be an attempt to make out a doleful category of Jewish hardships. It is futile to linger over details, however painful they may be. I do not intend to awaken sympathetic emotions on our behalf. That would be a foolish, futile, and undignified proceeding. I shall content myself with putting the following questions to the Jews. Is it true that, in countries where we live in perceptible numbers, the position of Jewish lawyers, doctors, men of science, teachers, and officials of all descriptions becomes daily more intolerable. True that the Jewish middle classes are seriously threatened. True that the passions of the mob are incited against our wealthy representatives. True that our poor endure greater sufferings than any other proletariat. I think that this external pressure makes itself felt everywhere. In our upper classes it causes unpleasantness, in our middle classes continual and grave anxieties, in our lower classes absolute despair. Everything tends, in fact, to one and the same conclusion, which is clearly enunciated in that classic Berlin phrase, Juden Raus. Out with the Jews. I shall put now the Jewish question in the curtest possible form. Are we to get out now? And if so, to what place? Or may we yet remain? And if so, how long? Let us first settle the point of staying where we are. Can we hope for better days? Can we possess our souls in patience? Can we wait in pious resignation till the princes and peoples of this earth are more mercifully disposed towards us? I say that we cannot hope for change in the current of feeling. And why not? Were we as near to the hearts of princes as are their other subjects, even so they could not protect us. 
they would only feed popular hatred of Jews by showing us too much favour. By uh, too much, I mean less than is claimed as a right by every ordinary citizen, and by every tribe. Every nation in whose midst Jews live is either covertly or openly anti-Semitic. The common people have not, and indeed cannot have, any historic comprehension. They do not know that the sins of the Middle Ages are now being visited on the nations of Europe. We are what the ghetto made us. We have doubtless obtained pre-eminence in finance because medieval conditions drove us to it. The same process is now being repeated. Modern conditions force us again into finance, now the stock exchange, by keeping us out of all other branches of industry. Being on the stock exchange, we are therefore again considered contemptible. At the same time, we continue to produce an abundance of mediocre intellects, which finds no outlet. And this endangers our social position as much as does our increasing wealth. Educated Jews without means are now fast becoming socialists. Hence we are certain to suffer very severely in the struggle between classes, because we stand in the most exposed position in the camps of both socialists and capitalists. Previous Attempts at a Solution The artificial means heretofore employed to overcome the troubles of the Jews have been either too petty, such as attempts at colonization, or mistaken in principle, such as attempts to convert the Jews into peasants in their present homes. What is the result of transporting a few thousand Jews to another country? Either they come to grief at once, or prosper, and then their prosperity creates anti-Semitism. We have already discussed those attempts to divert poor Jews to fresh districts. This diversion is clearly inadequate and futile, if it does not actually defeat its own ends, for it merely protracts and postpones a solution and perhaps even aggravates difficulties. Whoever were to attempt a conversion of the Jews into a husbandman would be making an extraordinary mistake. For a peasant is a historical category, as is proved by his costume, which in some countries he has worn for centuries, and by his tools, which are identical with those used by his earliest forefathers. His plough is unchanged. He carries the seed in his apron, mows with the historical scythe, and threshes with the time-honoured flail. But we know that all this can be done by machinery. The agrarian question is only a question of machinery. America must conquer Europe in the same way as large landed possessions absorb small ones. The peasant is consequently a type which is in course of extinction. Whenever he is artificially preserved, it is done on account of the political interest which he is intended to serve. It is absurd, and indeed impossible, to make modern peasants on the old pattern. No one is wealthy or powerful enough to make civilization take a single retrograde step. The mere preservation of Obsolete institutions is a task severe enough to require the enforcement of all the despotic measures of an autocratically governed state. 
Are we therefore to credit Jews, who are intelligent, with a desire to become peasants of the old type? One might as well say to them, Here is a crossbow, now go to war. What, with a crossbow, while the others have rifles and maxim guns? Under these circumstances the Jews are perfectly justified in refusing to stir when people try to agrarianize them. A crossbow is a beautiful weapon. It inspires me with mournful feelings when I have time to give way, but it belongs rightly in a museum. Now, there certainly are districts where desperate Jews go out, or at any rate are willing to go out, and till the soil. And a little observation shows that these districts, such as portions of Hessen in Germany and some provinces in Russia, these very districts are the principal seats of anti-Semitism. For the world's reformers, who send the Jews to the plough, forget a very important person who has a decided objection to seeing them there. This person is the agriculturalist. And the agriculturalist is also perfectly justified in his objections, for the tax on land, the risks attached to crops, the pressure of large proprietors who cheapen labour, and American competition in particular, combine to make his life hard enough. The duties on corn cannot go on increasing indefinitely, nor can the manufacturer be allowed to starve. His political influence is, in fact, in the ascendant and he must therefore be treated with additional consideration. All these difficulties are well known, therefore I only referred to them cursorily. I merely wanted to indicate clearly how futile has been past attempts, most of them well intended, to solve the Jewish question. Neither a diversion of the stream, nor an artificial depression of the intellectual level of our proletariat will overcome the difficulty. The supposed infallible expedient of assimilation has already been dealt with. We cannot get the better of anti-Semitism by any of these methods. It cannot die out so long as its causes are not removed. Are they removable? Causes of anti-Semitism we shall not again touch on those causes which are the result of temperament, prejudice, and limited views, but shall here restrict ourselves to political and economic causes alone. Modern anti-Semitism is not to be confounded with the religious persecution of the Jews of former times. It does occasionally take a somewhat religious bias, but the main current of the aggressive movement has now changed. In the principal countries where anti-Semitism prevails, it does so as a result of the emancipation of the Jews. When civilized nations awoke to the inhumanity of exclusive legislation and enfranchised us, our enfranchisement came too late. It was no longer possible legally to remove our disabilities in our old homes. For we had, curiously enough, developed while in the ghetto into a bourgeois people, and we stepped out of it only to enter into fierce competition with the middle classes. Hence our emancipation set us suddenly within this middle class circle, where we have a double pressure to sustain from within 
and from without. The Christian bourgeoisie would not be unwilling to cast us as a sacrifice to socialism, though that would not greatly improve matters. At the same time, the equal rights of Jews before the law cannot be withdrawn where they have once been conceded, not only because their withdrawal would be opposed to the spirit of our age, but also because it would immediately drive all Jews, rich and poor alike, into the ranks of the revolutionary party. Nothing effectual can really be done to our injury. In old days our jewels were seized. How is our movable property to be got hold of now? It is comprised in printed papers, which are scattered over the world, locked up, maybe, in the coffers of Christians. It is, of course, possible to get at shares and debentures in railways, banks, and industrial concerns of all descriptions by taxation, and where the progressive income tax is in force, all our realised property can eventually be laid hold of. But all these efforts cannot be directed against Jews alone, and where they have nevertheless been made, severe economic crises with far-reaching effects have been their immediate consequence. The very impossibility of getting at the Jews nourishes and embitters hatred of them. Anti-Semitism increases day by day and hour by hour among the nations. Indeed, it is bound to increase, because the causes of its growth continue to increase and cannot be removed. Its remote cause is our loss of the power of assimilation during the Middle Ages. Its immediate cause is our excessive production of mediocre intellects who cannot find an outlet downwards or upwards, that is to say, no wholesome outlet in either direction. When we sink, we become a revolutionary proletariat, the subordinate officers of the revolutionary party. When we rise, there rises also our terrible power of the purse. Effects of anti-Semitism The oppression we endure does not improve us, for we are not a whit better than ordinary people. It is true that we do not love our enemies, but he alone who can conquer himself dare reproach us with that fault. Oppression naturally creates hostility among oppressors, and our hostility aggravates the pressure. It is impossible to escape from this eternal round. No, say some soft-hearted visionaries, no, it is possible, possible by means of the ultimate perfection of humanity. Is it worth while pointing out the sentimental folly of this view? He who would found his hope for improved conditions on the ultimate perfection of humanity would indeed be painting a utopia. I referred previously to our assimilation. I do not for a moment wish to imply that I desire such an end. Our national character is too historically famous, and, in spite of every degradation, too fine to make its annihilation desirable. We might perhaps be able to merge ourselves entirely into surrounding races, if these were wont to leave us in peace for a space of two generations but they will not leave us in peace. For a little period they manage to tolerate us, 
and then their hostility breaks out again and again. The world is provoked by our prosperity because it has for many centuries been accustomed to consider us the most contemptible among the poverty-stricken. It forgets in its ignorance and narrowness of heart that prosperity weakens our Judaism and extinguishes our peculiarities. It is only pressure that forces us back to the parent's stem. It is only hatred encompassing us that makes us strangers once more. Thus, whether we like it or not, we are now, and shall henceforth remain, a historic group with unmistakable characteristics common to us all. We are one people. Our enemies have made us one in our despite, as repeatedly happens in history. Distress binds us together, and, thus united, we suddenly discover our strength. Yes, we are strong enough to form a state, and a model state. We possess all human and material resources necessary for the purpose. This is the strictly appropriate place for an account of what has been somewhat rudely termed our human material, but it would not be appreciated until the broad lines of the plan on which everything depends had first been marked out. End of chapter 2, section 1